Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, January 29th, 2022. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Right now it is Wednesday morning, and we have with us once again our friend Truthvids to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 70 in this series of podcasts. Here we shall depart from our biblical proofs in order to discuss the similarities which the Hebrews had with ancient Greek culture. This will demonstrate that Hebrews and Greeks held many common beliefs, even if one side is from a pagan perspective. While we shall not get to it in this presentation, Next, we shall discuss the similarities between the Hebrew language and the languages of Europe. Those similarities go far beyond the fact that the nations of Europe use a Hebrew-Phoenician alphabet, as many of the most basic words are so similar in sound and meaning that they must be directly related. Here, we will see the same thing about basic cultural beliefs. They are so similar that they must be directly related. Hello, Truthfits. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, so here we're going to mostly focus on the similarities between the Israelite culture and the Greek culture. Uh, Generally, that would apply mostly to the Dorian and Danon, although eventually all the um, Ionians as well kind of all intermingled and it became kind of a Greek society, right? But um, you, you could probably also apply this to the Roman society, probably the Carthaginian, right? We, we don't know that much about the Carthaginian because the Romans wiped them out, right? But um, also the Iberian and no doubt the Scythians as well. You'd see a lot of similarities between the way they were and the customs, right? And that's what you would expect. And uh, most um, detractors who think Jews are the Israelites, they will always immediately go, well, why weren't they circumcised? But we see uh, the first thing uh, Yahweh commanded when the Israelites, I believe, came out of with the Exodus was to recircumcise their, their children, right, and and, their, and themselves, because that's the first thing you give up, right, and that uh, Yahweh insisted that they had to keep the circumcision. So it's no surprise that once they started spreading out to Europe that they would lose that and other customs, but nonetheless, um, other customs would kind of stay the same and that you would kind of keep this same culture and you would see that they resembled each other. Right, Bill? Right, absolutely. And and it is fully evident right in Scripture that in their oppression in Egypt, the children of Israel were not circumcised because they had to be recircumcised, as you said. They had to reinitiate the circumcision. I believe that's on two occasions, if I'm not mistaken. They had to reinitiate circumcision again after the wandering in the desert, if I'm not mistaken. So, you're right, that is like the first practice or, or custom that they had that they seemed to lose. And of course, as soon as they were deported into captivity by the Assyrians and Babylonians, they also 
lost this circumcision again. That they the tribes that didn't return to Palestine all lost being circumcised, and so did the Dorians and Danans in Greece. So this is proof number ninety in our list. Israelite and Greek culture were the same. They were essentially the same from two different perspectives, a pagan perspective and the perspective of biblical truth. And the first item I have here is from Aeschylus, and it's from Prometheus Bound, one of his more famous plays. They were all poems. You could call them poems or you could call them plays. And this is the son as a supplanter of the father. There were many parallels between ancient Hebrew and Greek religious beliefs and customs that cannot be explained if the cultures were not related. So here we are going to actually revisit material that I have compiled for a 2010 podcast presentation titled Greek Culture is Hebrew. My focus here was on the tragic poets, namely Aeschylus and Euripides, both of whom wrote in the 5th century BC. And when I compiled this material, I purposely focused on those two poets because they represent some of the oldest surviving literature of the classical period. This is not Hellenistic Greece, where if I'd have chose Hellenistic era writers in order to be able to make this representation, then a lot of my examples could be accused of being Hellenistic cultural transmission, right? But this is pre-Hellenistic. This is 200 years before Alexander the Great, in the case of Aeschylus, and perhaps 150 in the case of Euripides. Aeschylus is esteemed to have been born in 525 BC, and Euripides in 480 BC, which makes him a contemporary with Herodotus. I think Herodotus was actually four years older. So this is from Prometheus Bound, and I'm going to read a few lines starting at line 755. And this is actually a dialogue between Yo and Prometheus. And Yo says what? Shall Zeus one day be hurled from his own dominion? So Prometheus responds and says, Thou would rejoice, I trow, to see that happen. I trow, that's really archaic language. Yo says, How should I not, since tis at the hand of Zeus I suffer ill? I believe Yo was forced by Zeus to wander as a cow. Around the, around the whole world, right? She was sent into wandering. Prometheus responds, Then thou mayest assure thyself that these things are so. And Yo says, By whom shall he be despoiled of the scepter of his sovereignty? Prometheus says, By himself and his own empty-headed purposes. So Yo asks, In what way? 
Oh, tell me if there be no harm in telling. And Prometheus responds, He shall make a marriage that shall one day cause him ruth, ruth or ill or sorrow. So Yo says, With one divine at birth or with a mortal? If it may be told, speak out. And Prometheus asks, Why ask with whom? Of this I may not speak. And Yo says, Is it by his consort that he shall be dethroned? And Prometheus responds and says, A, since she shall bear a son mightier than his sire. Mightier than his father. Mightier than Zeus himself. So here we see that the Greeks had held a belief that their god, Zeus, who held a scepter of sovereignty over men, would be replaced by his own son. In the second psalm, we have a prophecy of Yahweh God appointing his own son to be ruler over the nations, where we read, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So, in the Bible, the son would receive the scepter of his father's sovereignty, as it is attested in the second psalm. Where Prometheus said that the same thing would happen to Zeus, there are differences with scripture, but the concept is the same. Even more deeply, Prometheus attests that Zeus would make a marriage which would cause him ruth, which is remorse or sorrow. Likewise, Yahweh had married Israel, and in the person of Christ, he was compelled to die on behalf of his wife. That's um, interesting, Bill, because Prometheus is the one who gave us fire, right? Or one of the Greek myths, and, and in some ways he's kind of related to the um, uh, to the Satan, right? The the head angel who went against Yahweh, and, and here he's actually arguing that, um, you know, the way of Zeus is uh, the wrong way. They shouldn't be doing it this way, so he's kind of rebelling against him, and he thinks it's foolish, uh, you know, and that's probably what the head angel thought when... Uh, Yahweh gave the world to the Adamites, right? His Adamic creation, right? There's sort of um, a, a link there, although the poet's just writing from his perspective. It's interesting the way he worded it, right? Absolutely. If, if you look at the Enoch literature, and, and I don't promote one Enoch, and that's because I think that it's full of fantastic interpolations and and it's different books put together they were actually written at far different times the dead sea scrolls copies of enoch the fragments that we have of them they don't really read 
very similarly to One Enoch in a lot of places. They're very different literatures. So One Enoch I don't really trust, but if you look at the Enoch literature and see that these fallen angels were given credit for teaching men all of these arts, and then you look at the Greek pagan gods and goddesses and their attributes, you could see a lot of correlations there. You can. And I'm sure um, he would find, well, I don't know, I don't know, but speculating a a fallen angel might find it ridiculous that Yahweh would marry a a nation of, of Adamites, right? Well, right. And it, he already did marry himself to that nation as his wife. And, of course, that's because the biblical literature precedes this Greek literature by a thousand years. Moses precedes Aeschylus by at least 900 years. So, it, it's this biblical literature obviously had been circulating for a long time and the Greeks even at this early time must have been familiar with it however they shared and this is going to become evident as we proceed they shared many of the same customs now some of these concepts which I'm about to point out as we proceed through this are actually pretty simple, like metaphors and idioms and things like that, where we could see the overlap in literary devices that that were used by both, say, Paul of Tarsus, and Paul using these devices in addressing Hebrews and Israelites, they must have understood what he was saying. So there was a lot of cultural overlap, even with metaphors and idioms, but we'll see that there's a lot of cultural overlap with foundational religious beliefs as well. So to move on to some metaphors and idioms, to kick against the pricks, from line 324 of Prometheus Bound by Aeschylus, we read, therefore take me as thy teacher and not kick against the pricks. And again, from Aeschylus's play titled Agamemnon, from line 1621, bonds and the pangs of hunger are the far best mediciners of wisdom for the instruction even of old age. Hast eyes and lackest understanding? Kick not against the pricks, lest thou strike to thy heart. And Paul of Tarsus used this same idiom in reference to vain resistance, to describe vain resistance, where he said in Acts chapter 26, verse 14, And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. So so you think it's an idiom of just doing something that is futile or or only working against yourself, like kicking against pricks and forms? Well, well, right. It's 
offering vain resistance. In, in other words, if God or a God or a, or, or a man stronger than you insists that you go a certain way and you resist it, the, the, your resistance is vain. It's futile because you're going to go that way. This allusion in Agamemnon to lacking, having eyes and lacking understanding leads me to discuss the next metaphor or idiom, eyes to see and ears to hear. So once again, in Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound from line 447, we read, first of all, though they had eyes to see, they saw to no avail. They had ears, but understood not. But like the shapes in dreams, throughout their length of days, without purpose, they wrought all things in confusion. That's very, that evokes Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9. And he said, Yahweh speaking to the prophet, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. We also have Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21. Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. Then there's Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 2. Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house, which have eyes to see and see not, they have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. So, so it's the same theme that we see in Prometheus Bound. The same context where these passages, the, these idioms are used. Now, I don't know if we ever found anything like that in, in India or China in their literature. I wouldn't read their literature. But here we'll, we'll have many other similarities, direct similarities and correlations between Hebrew and Greek culture. We should talk so, about so this the shows. So I was just going to say this shows you that um, the poets, when they formed their poetry, they must have been familiar with some of the uh, Hebrew Israelite uh, poet, well, scriptures at least. And it rubbed off on them the, the way they speak, and then they put it into their, their poetry and their writing, right? That's a strong possibility that there's um, evidence that some of the early philosophers were also affected and took their ideas from Hebrew scripture. Let's talk about the relationship between Dorians and Persians. The Greek literature insists that they are related races. From Aeschylus, from his play The Persians, in line 176, where the poet puts these words into the mouth of Atosa. Atosa was the Greek name for the mother of Xerxes, the Persian king. And she's made to say to Xerxes, as he goes off to invade Greece in war, I have never been haunted by many a dream at night since my son, having fitted forth his armament, departed hence with intent to lay waste the land of the Ionians. But never yet have I beheld so distinct a vision 
as yesternight. I will describe it unto thee. I dreamed that two women in fair vesture, one appareled in Persian garb, the other in Dorian attire, appeared before mine eyes, both in stature far more striking than the women of our time, in beauty flawless, sisters of the self-same race. And of course, there are many other allusions to this in Greek literature. This was the one I simply chose in order to make this explanation. I could have chosen many others. Aeschylus, who was a veteran warrior of the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, wrote only a few years after the wars with the Persians. He did not consider the Ionians to be related to the Persians. But here, in the mouth of his character, he professed that the Dorians and Persians were sister races. We have already discussed in these presentations of the 100 Proofs the letter which Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, who was also a Dorian, had sent to Onias, the high priest in Judea. In that letter, the king had professed that the Dorians were derived from the stock of Abraham, as well as the Judeans. We have also explained that the Dorians were Israelites who departed from the Levant about 1100 BC and migrated into the Peloponnese through Crete. But here it is evident that they must have known their relationship to the tribes even further east, as we see in Scripture that Persians were also Shemites, like the Israelites were Shemites. Here, Aeschylus considered Dorians and Persians to be related, but not Dorians and Ionians, or Ionians and Persians. Rather, Ionians were Jepetites, they weren't Shemites. And um, even the name Persians, it comes from, I know we mentioned it before, but Perseus, right, and, and he was said to have married Andromeda, who, who was, um, was, she, was she a Phoenician? And that's where the, the myth was, that's where the Persians come from, right? And that's where the, the name actually comes from. Instead of Elam, of course, the, the real name would be Elam, Elamites, and that there was even a city, Elam, in that area. But And generally, the Persians were often just called Medes, right? Because it was the Medo-Persian Empire. But there was a myth of the Perseus who was related to all the to Hercules, to Danaeus, uh, and all that. So, so there was a myth going back, um, you know, right back in the old time, right, Bill? Right, and, and that actually suggests even closer connections between the Persians and Israelites that, than the scripture informs us of. Because this, in the scripture, Persia is always called Elam. And Elam is a cousin to Arfaxad, or, or a brother of Arfaxad. The Persians are cousins to the Hebrews. They're not as closely related as the Greek myths suggest, the connections between Persians and Phoenicians. Nevertheless, the connections are there. And we see that they are related races in both scripture and in the Greek myths. 
the spirits of the dead in the afterlife, and of course this would be huge because this is identical to the Hebrew beliefs of Sheol and the abode of the dead in the underworld, where spirits can rise from the dead and and be conjured and communicate with the living, again from the Persians, from Aeschylus's Persians, line 640, here Atosa, the queen mother, is lamenting the Persian loss at the Battle of Salamis, and while she stands at the tomb of her dead husband, Darius, the father of Xerxes, his spirit is conjured, and she has a conversation with him. So, there's a lot of discourse in this portion of the play, but I'm only going to cite one, one short example. O earth, and ye rulers of them that dwell in the netherworld, vouchsafe, I implore, that the glorious spirit, the god of the Persians, whom Susa bore, Susa being the capital city of Persia at the time, may quit his abode, send to the upper world him, whose like Persian earth never yet entombed. O Ahidanius, Ahidanius, thou who conveyest shades, shades or the spirits of men, to the upper air, suffer our divine Lord Darian, or Darius, to come forth. So she's basically conjuring the spirit of her dead husband. And this is reminiscent of First Samuel chapter 28, where Saul has the spirit of Samuel conjured up from among the dead, and he has a conversation with Samuel. Similar events are depicted in even earlier Greek writing. For example, where Odysseus visited Hades and spoke to the spirits of the dead, to Achilles and Elpenor and others in Odyssey Book 11. And Odyssey Book 11 is actually a pretty lengthy tale about the voyage which Odysseus was able to make to the underworld to speak to the spirits of the dead. Yeah, and um, you also see that they um, strongly believed that how you act in, acted in life affected, um, you, you know, there was a reason that similar to uh, the Israelite belief that you would be judged eventually, um, that they believed that you had to live a righteous life. If you read the... Um, you know, these old classics like Odyssey and Homer, you see that they certainly believed that, that they were a white Israelite society who, I think we're going to get to that in a sec, that you had to keep, if you made an oath or, or you, you know, you promised your word that you had to keep your oath and such, and that if not, the gods would judge you, right? And and that's exactly what uh, Yahweh said, that you, you must um, be a righteous person with all the laws, right? Or if not, the, the fiery trials would come upon us, right? Absolutely. They did believe in the judgment of the gods upon men for their misdeeds, without a doubt, and and that men would be punished even in the afterlife for their misdeeds. Resurrection from the dead. The ancient Greeks also expressed the concept of resurrection from the dead. 
In a play written by Euripides, entitled Alcestis, the entire play is about death and resurrection. The heroine, Alcestis, chooses to die in place of her husband, Admetus, whom the fates decreed must die unless another volunteer was to take his place. Heracles then decided to reward Alcestis for her loyalty and sacrifice, and descending into Hades and defeating death, he brought her back from the grave and restored her to her husband. The ancient Babylonians also had stories about the dead returning from the netherworld, and I really think that the story of Tammuz and women crying for Tammuz actually included a fable that Tammuz was able to come back to life from the netherworld for six months out of the year, or, or something very similar to that. And um, we see that all Adamic um, civilizations initially believed that even the Egyptians did at one point, right? They believed uh, that there was a netherworld, that that's where, where you went, but eventually they all trailed off. But because the Israelites had the truth and were kept to the scripture, uh, civilizations that came from the Israelites would still cling to that belief, right? Whereas by that time, other Adamic, civiliz Adamic civilizations had given up on that um, belief, right? Well, right, and, and that's actually a pretty good correlation because it shows that there are serious cultural connections between all of the European nations and the ancient Israelites. The Germanic nations, that they had tales of Valhalla, which is basically heaven, just like the Greeks had the Isles of the Blessed that particularly good people could escape their fate in Hades and be sent to the Isles of the Blessed, which were in the Western Ocean, in, for their afterlife. And that's very similar to the Germanic Valhalla, where the Germans also had hell. So certain Germans went to hell and certain went to Valhalla. I should probably use the term Norsemen or, or most of the, from what I can understand, most of the tribes of the Galatahi had these similar beliefs in an afterlife. It's written in, I believe it's in Diodor Siculus, it might be in Strabo of Cappadocia, speaking about the bravery of the Gauls in battle being based on the fact of their belief that they would have eternal life and be rewarded in the afterworld if they had sacrificed themselves in battle for their people. Yeah, and you can see that it just got warped, right? If there was a warrior society, then... Um, you know, if you was a great warrior, then you'd have a greater reward. Uh, if it was a king, he believed that he could take his riches with him. So, so it kind of got warped that, you know, the, the afterlife, depending on what kind of society it formed, right? Well, right. And now the advent of Islam in most of the non-white world has perverted everything.
because it is projected. Islam was basically a religion developed by Jews, and it projected all of these Hebrew Israelite beliefs upon all of the non-whites, and and that confuses history, and it confuses these issues that we speak of here. Because it, people will say, oh, what about the Muslims? They believe this or they believe that. But their entire religion, those Arabs were superstitious pagans that worshipped a rock in the desert. And Islam had enshrined that same rock in the desert while at the same time giving it the appearance of a so-called Abrahamic religion and a belief system that these heathens that worshipped this rock in the desert never had until Islam was forced on them by these tribes of Jews in, in and around Mecca and the other portions of Arabia, Madaba, Mecca, all those places where Islam was brought in its formative years, it was basically brought by Jews. Yeah, you don't read anywhere anywhere in um, white civilizations of them expecting 90 wives or 90 virgin wives in the Neverworld, right? <laughs> that That's a right. kind of a perversion of these uh, Islam, these Muslims, right? Oh, yeah, it's an absolute corruption. It, it's a religion based on lust and the will to have political power. It, it um, what one connection I thought of, Bill, was um, when Odysseus raises the dead and he's speaking to Achilles and Agamemnon, Agamemnon laments that he was killed by his own wife. And then, um, you know, he says how, how great Odysseus's wife is because she's loyal and, um, you know, she stayed with him all those years. Uh, Penelope, I believe. Penelope. And he said, that's a great gift from God to have that. And I believe there's something like that in the scriptures, isn't there, in Proverbs? Or it might be the Psalms that um, a loyal wife is a gift from Yahweh, and that, that's what Agamemnon saw, right? So it, it's kind of similar there. Oh, yes. I'm sure there's many other similarities than even the ones I've, I've illustrated here. You could probably keep going indefinitely through, throughout the classical Greek literature. There's a book, and I wasn't going to bring it up tonight. I, I probably should have. There's a book at Christagenia, and it's also under the same title, Greek Culture is Hebrew, so it would be easy to search for it. It's a PDF book that I had found that was written in the 1800s, and basically it correlates the classics with the Bible, and even though I think some of the references are very vague, there are thousands of references in this book. It's called Scripture Parallels in Ancient Classics. And this writer that, that put this book together went through all the philosophers and, and basically dozens and dozens of works of classical literature. Crawford, Tate, Ramage, or, or Ramage, or R-A-M-A-G-E, however he wants to pronounce that. This was published in 
Edinburgh in 1878. And it basically, there's probably a hundred classical authors cited here. He gives a chronological index of those authors. And he just goes through similar passages. Passages from this classical literature that are similar to things that are said in the scriptures. And the book is well over 400 and 420 pages, 430 pages, something like that, if I don't count the... Mm, okay, it's a little shorter. 414 pages before you get to the index. So it's it's quite a piece of work. I, I don't... Like I said, many of the citations are very vague. They're only vague similarities. But it shows that the language of the Bible and the language of classical Greek writers is essentially the same language. And, once again, they shared many common beliefs. The punishment of stoning. This is found in Aeschylus in Seven Against Thebes from line 196. There, the poet puts these words into the mouth of Eteocles, who was the king of Thebes. Now, if there be one who shall refuse obedience to my authority, man or woman, or whatsoever is betwixt, or between, I guess they had trannies in those days too. They had effeminate men in those days. We've always had effeminate men with us. Sentence of death shall be passed upon him. And he shall in no wise escape destruction by stoning at the people's hand. So stoning was a method of capital punishment among the Thebans, according to the poet. Yet stoning is again mentioned as a punishment used among the Argives. In Agamemnon, line 16.16, where it portrays the people as having said to Agesithus, I tell thee, in the hour of justice, thou thyself, be sure of that, shalt not escape the people's curses and death by stoning at their hand. So the Argives were damning Greeks, and the Thebans traditionally were Phoenicians in Greece, and they had all used the punishment of stoning according to the tragic poets. And um, crucifixion, crucifixion, that came from the Assyrians, didn't it? And then eventually the Romans uh, copied it. Is that right? I believe the Persians took it from the Assyrians as well, but it originally came from the Assyrians, and the Romans used it, yes, where the Greeks never used crucifixion that I've seen. And neither did the ancient Hebrews. In fact, in the law it's written, Cursed is the man that hangs upon a tree. The destroying angel, the concept of a destroying angel. From Aeschylus's Agamemnon, from line 1080, the poet puts these words into the mouth of Cassandra, who makes an appeal to Apollo, Apollo, God of the ways, my destroyer. And here the name Apollo is derived from a participle form of apolumi, which is a verb that means to destroy. 
But here, Apollo is also called God of the Ways, as he was seen to be a protector on journeys. And indeed, another meaning of Abolumi, as it was used by Greek writers, was to be driven off. And this is the word translated as lost in Matthew chapter 15 in reference to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the driven off sheep of the house of Israel. The Hebrew Old Testament makes mention quite often of a destroyer, sometimes described as an angel. In Revelation chapter 9 verse 11, the Greek word Apollon or Apollyon was used as a name in that same sense. So that even though the term is used more generally in the Revelation of simply a destroyer, and it's not a reference to, to the pagan god Apollo, we see that Apollo was seen as a destroying god, or from the Christian perspective, from the biblical perspective, a destroying angel. The blood of the innocent, from Aeschylus, from the libation bearers, and, and that's another practice, right? The, the offering of libations to a god, which the Greeks and the Hebrews had in common. So just the title of this play betrays the similar, that similarity in the cultures. From about line 36 of the Libation Bearers, we read, Heaven's will under pledge declared that those beneath the earth complain in bitter anger and are wroth against their slayers. For what redemption is there for blood once fallen on the earth? And that's a question. And to that we should compare Genesis chapter 4 verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Again, from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So that that, that concept of blood crying from the ground, the concept of the souls in Hades who cry out in bitter anger and are wroth against their slayers is found right in right there in, in both Genesis chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 6. The way it's described is the exact same manner in, in both the Greek poem and in the Hebrew Bible. Is that also why um, Rome was destroyed uh, as a judgment for all the um, p persecutions? 
I mean, I know that inevitably that it was Yahweh prophesied that the Germanic tribes would inherit everything, but but also it was a judgment against Rome, right? Well, yes, it it was. I'm sure that it was repayment for all of Rome's paganism and all of Rome's persecution of Christians. It it was inevitable that Rome was going to fall and be destroyed. It, it's not only prophesied in scripture, but no decadent society can possibly endure. And and we've become decadent today and people think that that the the sodomites and when I use sodomites in the sense I'm not merely speaking about homosexuals. All those committing fornication with the world itself are proud. They're constantly described in scripture as having excessive pride and sinning in pride and with arrogance. And they actually never see their own fall. They always think that they're going to be able to live in sin forever. And it's not true. It's not going to happen. They are going to be destroyed as a result of their sin. It's inevitable. But they're always proud. Yeah, and people think that our current society can keep going on for many centuries, right? But um, in a CI perspective, you see that we're constantly declining, even though, um, you know, the sinners are completely ignorant to that, right? We see it going down, but they think it's going to keep going on and getting better and better, right, when it's not. Right, it's absolutely not. And they think that their technology is going to, quote-unquote, save them. And it's all going to be vanity in the end. The struggle between sons and bastards is described in Euripides' Hippolytus, lines 962 and 963, where we read, The bastard is always an enemy to the true born. And to this we should compare Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, where Paul said, But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. But we can also compare to Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. So, of course, there is the murder of Cain, and Abel, the rivalry between the sons of Abraham, and the persecution of Christ by Cain's descendants. The concept of the kinsman avenger of blood is actually very prevalent in ancient Greek writing. Here will be from the libation bearers once again, from line 269. Of a surety, the mighty oracle of Loxius will not abandon me. Now, Loxius was actually an epithet for Apollo. And Loxius itself, the word means crosswise. So it was used to describe the ambiguity of the oracles of Apollo. 
They were ambiguous, right? They were slanted. They weren't straight and direct and explicit. Of a surety, the mighty oracle of Loxius will not abandon me, charging me to brave this peril to the end, and with loud utterance proclaiming afflictions chilling my warm heart's blood. If I avenge not my father on the guilty, bidding me, infuriated by the loss of my possessions, slay them in requital even as they slew, and of other assaults of the avenging spirits he spoke, destined to be brought to pass from a father's blood. For the darkling bolt of the infernal powers, who are stirred by slain victims of kindred race, calling for vengeance. And this is a precise parallel to that same Hebrew next-of-kin blood avenger that we see described in Numbers chapter 35 and elsewhere. When a man is slain, his next-of-kin are obliged to see that his slayer is brought to justice. But Orestes travailed over avenging his father, and the libation bearers is basically about Orestes. Orestes was placed in a difficult situation because it was his own mother and her lover who had killed his father. And he was therefore obligated to slay his own mother, and for that he would also suffer. So he was stuck, right? We'll have a reference to Electra later on, and that will be the sister of Orestes, and she also sought to slay her mother. And and that's a tough situation, right? Because Agamemnon actually killed his own daughter. So you can understand why the mother was uh, furious with him and wanted him dead. Right. But the father had the power of life and death over his children. So even though Agamemnon sacrificed his own daughter, he could not be counted a murderer. Just like if Abraham had sacrificed Isaac, as he was commanded to by Yahweh, he would not have been accounted a murderer. Of course, it's very different today where um, the government owns our children, right? Yeah, right. Now the government owns our children. And it's probably good that we don't sacrifice our children on the altars of Baal any longer or or Moloch. It, It truly is evil. And it is murder, regardless of the power that the society gives a father. We're to love our brethren as we love ourselves. So you're not loving your brethren by killing your children. However, in the world of the ancient Greeks and Hebrews, a father had control of his children. Jephthah had a parental right to sacrifice his daughter in the book of Judges. Now, we'll discuss that sacrifice later, because I don't believe that he killed her. That's not true. He committed her to a temple and sacrificed her in that manner. We'll probably discuss that also later on. The mourning of the dead and professional mourners 
we see them in the Bible. This is kind of obscure. We also see them mentioned in Herodotus. But here I chose, once again, a passage from the Libation Bearers, from Aeschylus. They were evidently a caste of professional wailing women in Greece, in Israel, and in Persia. So we read in Aeschylus from the Libation Bearers from line 424. Upon my breast I did beat an Aryan dirge, even after the want of a Scythian wailing woman. And at the time, Aria was a district of Persia, and it gives us the name Iran today. Scythia was an area of Susiana, which was the capital district of Persia. I'm sorry, I had a cough. To this we should compare Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Consider ye, and call for the mourning women, mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, women who lament or mourn, that they may come, and send for cunning women, that they may come, and let them make haste, and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run down with tears, and our eyelids gush out with waters. So this is a direct reference to the Persian custom of professional wailing women, which Jeremiah attests here that the Hebrews also shared. And they're actually called cunning women because they're they're being deceptive. They're not really caring about a dead person. They're hired to mourn for a person that died. They're part of the funeral entourage, right? So there are professional funeral goers, professional criers. Wow. Flavius Josephus mentions the custom in Wars Book 3. I didn't pull the citation. But it's also mentioned by Herodotus, I believe, the Sicilian wailing women. They must have been famous for it. But, of course, Jeremiah doesn't relate this to the Persians. We only see the same custom among the Israelites, and here it's mentioned in the Libation Bearers. Black garments, worn in mourning. And this is found in Euripides, in Alcestis from line 425. Words placed into the mouth of Admetus, the king of Phere in Thessaly, a Greek city in Thessaly. I command all the Thessalians in my realm to join in the morning for my wife, let them cut their hair and wear black apparel. Now, sackcloth was worn by Hebrews in mourning the dead, and that too was black, which is evident in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, where we read, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. Lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. 
And even today we dress in black for funerals, right? Whilst um, the Jews, the, the Orthodox Jews, they always just wear black. What's up with that, right? What kind of uh, weird, uh, effed up people are they? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's kind of strange. They're always in mourning. I guess for their six million. Maybe. Okay. The mourning of the dead. This leads us to cutting the hair in in shearing or or being shorn as a sign of mourning. And we have just seen a reference to this in Aeschylus, but there are others in Euripides. In Helen, which is, of course, a play about the Helen of Troy and the Trojan War. In Helen, near lines 1087 and 1125. In this play, after the Trojan War, Menelaus had found Helen in Egypt, from where he sought to rescue her as she was being held by a king named Theoclemenus. So first, from line 1085, in the words of Helen to her husband, she says, Stay here. If he acts violently against you, this tomb and your own sword will protect you. I shall go into the house, cut my hair, change my white robe for a black one, and bloody my cheeks with my nails. So Helen would pretend as if she were mourning that her husband was dead, if she had to do so in order to save him. Then, further on, and, and this is actually from line 1121. Many Greeks died by the sword from great boulders hurled at them, and they have grim death as their companion. In sorrow for them, their luckless wives cut off their long hair, and from their houses bridal love is gone. So in both places, the poet described women cutting their hair in grief or disgrace while mourning for their dead husbands. The shorn hair of mourning is mentioned once again in Alcestis in line 511. So in Isaiah chapter 3, where the prophet described the vanity of the women of Israel in their sin. Yahweh announced their forthcoming punishment, and he said, And it shall come to pass, that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink, and instead of a girdle, a rent, meaning a tear, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a stomacher, probably like a petticoat or, or one of those garments that a woman wears to hold her belly in, right? A girding of sackcloth and burning instead of beauty. Thy men shall fall by the sword and thy mighty in the war. So we see that the women prophesied to lose their men in war would also be shorn in mourning. In Jeremiah chapter 7, there is a similar announcement. Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on high places. 
for Yahweh has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. We may also compare 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. So yeah, that's um, in- interesting. Just a uh, slight digression that there's theories that Helen wasn't even at Troy all along, right? That uh, her and Paris had ended up in Egypt and that the whole um, Troy expedition was for nothing, but they uh, destroyed Troy anyways. Right. There's that. That is the view that this play, Helen, presents by Euripides, where Paris had left Helen in safekeeping with an Egyptian king and gone back to Troy and fought in the war. And Menelaus didn't find Helen in Troy. All the Trojan women were taken as booty, all of them. And there's a lot of plays written in the tragic poets describing the fates of the various Trojan women. So Helen wasn't found among the Trojan women, and Menelaus went to Egypt and found that she was there, according to Euripides. The cleansing of sin with blood, I should say with either blood or baptism, And this is found, and there are many references to this in the Tragic Poets, but we're going to take this from Aeschylus, from his play Eumenides, at lines 448 to 452, where it says, It is the law that he who is defiled by shedding blood shall be debarred all speech until the blood of a suckling victim shall have besprinkled him by the ministrations of one empowered to purify from murder. Long since, at other houses, have I been thus purified, both by victims and flowing streams. So here we see that the Greeks believed that one may be cleansed of the sin of murder, either by baptism, flowing streams, or by blood, the blood of the sacrifice. So to this we should compare Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats, and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh... In the Bible, one empowered to purify from murder would be a Levitical priest, and more specifically, the high priest. So we see that the Greeks also thought such a task could be accomplished only by certain individuals. But of course, the cleansing of sins with baptism is only found in the New Testament, in the baptism of John, where in the Old Testament, The sins of the children of Israel could only be cleansed with the blood of sacrifice. And um, if if you read um, like the classics, 
it's not like made a big deal of, but often they'll say uh, just before a battle, they had to sacrifice a ball, right? To see if it was a good omen to go into battle or not. And, you know, stuff like that. And it's very reminiscent of the Old Testament where um, they would make great sacrifices to Yahweh, like like Solomon. Um, he made a huge sacrifice, um, tons of cattle. And, um, you know, the Greeks just took it further and believed whenever they have a war or a battle or they were going to go off on an expedition that they had to make a, a similar sacrifice to, to God or the gods uh, for hope for good fortune. In, and also sometimes to see if it was going to go well or not. You you spoke about it where they would check all the um, organs to see for look for signs and such, right? Right. They had augers, and the auger would sacrifice the animal and then examine its liver or other organs and look for signs. And if the liver what was healthy and unspotted perhaps that would indicate that the venture would be successful but if the liver was deformed and spotted then that may indicate that the venture was not going to be successful and they actually in the literature it seems that they put a lot of stock into the readings of augers they were very superstitious and um, I don't think you could link it to scripture, but often in the Roman battles, they would look for a sign to see if there was an eagle flying above. And that meant uh, they had a good omen, right? Or, or if several eagles, it meant that they would have complete victory. And I believe um, even Alexander, for example, when he had when he was invading um, the East, I think he had a dream or something. And one was uh, something to do with the water and one was something to do with the land and the, and it, then he realized no we have to take it by land so so they were always superstitious right on on how how they should in, conduct their campaigns and everything they always look for signs always that actually goes back to the most ancient greeks as well it it's often found in homer in the iliad and odyssey looking for birds in the sky and seeing if the next bird you saw came from the right or from the left, you would interpret that as an omen. The Greek word for right, the right hand, is dexia or dexius, I believe, or something very similar to that. And that's the word that we get dexterity from in English. But the Greek word for the left hand is euonumus. Euonumus is from the prefix eu, eu, which means good, like euphemism or, or something like that, right? And onomus in this case is from the Greek word onoma, which means name. So euonumus which is the word that they used for something on the left or on the left hand is basically said to be a euphemism for Aristeris, which was a word of ill omen. So they use this euphemism to describe something that was actually a bad omen because it came from the left, according to Liddell and Scott. 
and um, also build that they also, if they had battle formations, the place of honor was always the right side, right? And the left side, not so much. People always wanted to be on the right side. And if you, if um, they had mercenaries or something and they put them on the left, they would consider it, um, thinking of the word, but they would be dishonored if they were put on the left. They always wanted to be on the right, right? Yeah, I believe that's the case. But then you had the honored men always fighting the dishonored men from the other side or the men of lesser honor from the other side. We are at dancing in honor of a god. This is found in Euripides' Bacchae from line 206. Bacchae is a play about the Feast of Bacchus, which was another name for Dionysius, the Greek god of wine and revelry. The poet puts these words into the mouth of the character Tiresias. Will someone say that in preparing to dance with my head crowned with ivy, I show no respect for my old age. No, for the god has not distinguished old from young where dancing is concerned. He wants to receive joint honor from everyone and to be magnified by all without exception. In Euripides, in Phoenician Women, at line 655, we read as it speaks of Dionysius and it calls him the Bacchic god worshipped in dancing by maids and matrons of Thebes in their ecstasy. So here we see that dancing is directly connected with the worship of a pagan god. Likewise, in the Bible, we find a similar reference in Exodus chapter 32. From verse 4, And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool. After he had made it a molten calf, and they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation, and said, Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early on the morrow, and or to the Lord, perhaps. And they rose up early on the morrow, and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and rose up to play. They were worshipping this golden calf. I had read, Lord is Yahweh there. I want to check that. Yeah, it's Yahweh. Aaron said it was to Yahweh. The people were worshipping the golden calf. So further on in the chapter we read, And it came to pass, as soon as he came near under the camp, that he saw the calf, and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands, and broke them beneath the mount. So, there we see the people dancing in honor of the golden calf that they esteemed as a god. Later in scripture, dancing was accepted in honor of Yahweh. For example, in the 149th Psalm, Praise ye Yahweh, sing unto Yahweh a new song, 
and praise his praise in the congregation of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with timbrel and harp, for Yahweh takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. So gods were honored by dancing, and we see that in these examples from Greek literature as well as from scripture. The despite of luxury is reflected in Euripides' play Iphigenia at Aulis in line 70 to 75. And in part, we'll read, The man who judged the goddesses, and we'll get to that in a moment, so runs the story men tell. That's a parenthetical remark. The man who judged the goddesses came from Phrygia to Lacedaemon dressed in gaily colored clothing and gleaming with jewelry. The luxury of barbarians, which the Greeks had looked down on. The references to the story of Alexandros or Paris where he had been chosen to judge between Athena, Aphrodite, and Hera for their beauty, and it became a curse to him which set off the chain of events that caused the Trojan War. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, it can be seen that Israelites also despised such luxuries, where we read in the words of the mouth of Achan, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Achan was punished with death for his covetousness. The children of Israel were told to reject such covetousness and such luxuries. And I think um, doesn't Herodotus say that originally the Persians were um, very poor and then as they gradually gained the empire, they became very effeminate and, you know, luxurious, uh, went around in carts and and wore nice jewelry and everything. And and, and that's what they're referring to. Um, not, not necessarily here, but the Greeks really looked down upon that when they fought the Persians. Uh, there's even one bit where... Um, uh, when one of the Spartan kings invades Anatale, he, he stripped the Persians naked to show how effeminate and flabby and they had become, right? That, that the Greeks were fighting, right? That had, that, and that's always the fate of um, a society that becomes effeminate, uh, just like today, right? Just like today, all these people that we call soy boys, they are the product of a society that has gotten wealthy and became effeminate. Where the Greeks had found austerity to be a noble trait which produced strong men. And that's correct. I would agree. The warrior prince and son as the light of the nation. In Euripides' Iphigenia et Aulis, 
from line 1060. The centaurs make an announcement to Thetis, the mother of Achilles, with Peleus, the king of Phthia. So we read, Loud was their cry, meaning the centaurs. And they said, O daughter of Nereus, Chiron, the prophet who well knows the song of Phoebus, Phoebus is another epithet for Apollo, says that you will bear a son who will be a light to Thessaly. In scripture, the king of Babylon was mocked by Yahweh because he thought himself to be a light bearer, hence the term Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14. But of course, it was later announced that Christ came into the world as the true light of his people. So we see that concept expressed here in Euripides, 500 years before Christ, and only about 300 years after Isaiah, after Isaiah wrote those words mocking the king of Babylon. And that was common, wasn't it? All kings and pharaohs begun to think that they were like demigods or the sun, uh, the sun of the sun in the sky, right? That they were the light bearer of the world. Right. The sun on earth, the light bearer of the world, the source of light and and law for people. So here it's announced that Achilles would be a son who will be a light to Thessaly, right? It's the same theme that dates back to ancient Egypt and probably before that. The Egyptian pharaohs thought they were the sun on earth. Gods appearing as men. In Euripides, in Bacche, at lines 4 and 5, the poet puts these words into the mouth of Dionysius. Or Dionysus, I should say. I have exchanged my divine form for a mortal one, and have come to the waters of Dirke and Ismenus. The rivers are in the area of Thebes in Greece. Seeing this in Greek poetry, we can better understand what the common people imagined to have transpired in Acts chapter 14, in verses 11 and 12. And when the people saw what Paul had done, They lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. So that's exactly what we see there in Bacche, in the opening lines of the poem. And they called Barnabas Jupiter, and Paul Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. And that encapsulates the... Belief held in common by Greeks and Romans that Hermes was the messenger of God. And the Romans called Hermes Mercury. And God, in this case, in the book of Acts, would be Zeus in the minds of these pagan Lycaonians. And for some reason, the King James Version chose these Latin epithets for equivalent Greek characters. So Zeus is translated as Jupiter there. From a Hebrew perspective, men sent from God would have been perceived to be angels and not gods. However, we see that 
this idea of gods coming to earth as men is actually very old, and that describes, that helps us understand what Paul of Tarsus was saying, or Luke, what Luke was recording in this episode in Acts chapter 14. There are many parallels with scripture found in Euripides in Phoenician women from line 931, and this is going to be a lengthy passage, and then I will summarize each of those Hebraisms found in this paragraph, because it is practically a paragraph. This boy must be slaughtered in the chamber where the earthborn snake, guardian of Dirke's waters, came to birth. He must give the earth a libation of blood because of the ancient grudge of Ayers against Cadmus. Ayers is now avenging the death of the earthborn snake. If you do this, you will have Ayers as your ally. And if the ground receives offspring in place of offspring, and mortal blood for blood, earth will be propitious to you. Earth, who once sent forth the gold-helmeted harvest of the sown men. Now, the sown men were the Spartans, who were said to have sprung from the teeth of the dead serpent, after they were sown by Cadmus, and the Theban aristocracy were claimed to have descended from these sown men. One of this race must die, one begotten from the jaw of the snake. You are one of the last remaining members of the sown men here, of pure lineage on your mother's and father's side. And so are your children. Hymen's coming marriage prevents him from being slaughtered, for he is not a man unwed. Even if he has not yet experienced the bed of love, still he has a wife. This colt, sacrificial animal for the city, will rescue his fatherland by his death, and it's referring to a young boy. Sorry is the homecoming. He will give Adrestus and the Argives, casting black death upon their eyes, and glorious he will make Thebes. Of these two fates, choose one. Save your son or your city. So, among the many Hebraisms which we find here are the following. Kinsman vengeance, as a descendant of the murderer, must die to avenge the murder. So, a descendant of Cadmus had to die in order to satiate the desire of heirs for avenging the death of his earthborn snake, which was actually just a serpent in the Greek mythology. The idea of a cognizant earthbound serpent, a race amongst the Dorians believed to have been sprung from the serpent, hence the name Sparta from a verb meaning to sow. Ayers, the god of war, and Cadmus, the Phoenician founder of Thebes, are at enmity 
the serpent is associated with Ares throughout this story, and Ares is the god of war, the Greek god of war. Cadmus was also said to be the brother of Europa, and we see the Phoenician settlement of Europe as it was told in a myth in, in that particular story. Propitiation by the shedding of blood, propitiation for sin by the shedding of the blood of a victim. The death of one, one man, or this boy, this young Theban boy, for the sake of the nation. The father's sacrificing of a son on behalf of his nation, which we see in, in, in the entire account of Christianity. The law that a man cannot go into battle who has recently married, which is one year in Deuteronomy. So here we see that same law, that a man betrothed a wife, he can't be sacrificed, he can't go into that battle, in other words. All of these things are elements of scripture found in the customs or laws of the Israelites. In the same play, in lines 656 and 657, we see Ares, the god of war, associated with the serpent once again, and a place spoken of is Thebes. In that place was the deadly serpent of Ares, fierce-tempered guardian, over the watery eddies and fresh streams which he kept watch with glazing eye that ever moved. So, so you think originally um, some of these gods could have been uh, just all separate, and then later they were all kind of weaved together into a pantheon and made, you know, related, like brother, sister, son, daughter. But originally Ares was associated with this earthbound serpent, which we know are the non-Adamic races, right? Well, that's how we would interpret the earthbound snake or earthbound serpent, yes, from a biblical perspective. That's not how the Greeks interpreted it. The Greeks believed that Apollo had killed a serpent and cast it into a pit at Delphi, and that that was the... That was from where he received the ability to prophecy from the serpent, right? So here we see the serpent associated with the god of war, but the Greeks in, in their myths also associated the serpent, a different serpent, with the power of prophecy. So a lot of this parallels the accounts of the Old Testament or the accounts of the apocryphal Enoch literature where we see serpents had the ability to be sorcerers and prognosticate tell the future things like that but this is the other perspective this is the pagan perspective even though it's expressing the same cultural elements it's simply from the opposite side. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And we'd spoken, I can't remember, was it off air how maybe Tubal Cain became Vulcan and that 
the great smiths uh you know w- before the flood that they must have preserved the knowledge and had some idea of smithing and it might have turned into the the demigod or god vulcan right and, and from their perspective they would see him as a great smith from our perspective we would see him as a conniving jew right right and and i'm glad you brought that up because i think that you would mention that in the christogenia chat a few days ago the possible connection between vulcan and Tubalkin, Tubal Cain, and I think that that's actually creditable. That's actually very plausible. And we will see a lot of um, linguistic connections between Roman and Hebrew, or Latin and Hebrew, I hope in the weeks to come. So that one paragraph, it, it encapsulated a whole lot of things that we see were shared in common with the culture that's found in the Hebrew Bible. Even if they're from a twisted pagan perspective. Laws, the idea that laws emanate from God is found in Euripides' play Ion around line 440. The poet puts the following words into the mouth of the title character. I must rebuke Apollo. So here we have a man rebuking a god, right? I must rebuke Apollo. What is wrong with him? Ravishing unwedded girls and abandoning them. Begetting children and then sitting idly while they die. Do not act this way. Since you have power, pursue goodness. Any mortal who is base is punished by the gods. And there's the concept that God punishes the misdeeds of men. So how is it right that you who prescribe laws for mortals should yourselves be guilty of lawlessness? And among the Greeks, the gods were seen as lawgivers and as punishers of the disobedient just as Hebrews received the law from God and were punished by him for their disobedience. But there are also parallels to Genesis chapter 6 here, as there are throughout the Greek myths. The sins which the Greeks had thought were committed by gods, the prophets of Israel had assigned to the fallen angels, right, coming down to earth, and or coming down into the land of the children of Adam, which is probably more realistic, and taking the daughters of men for wives. And and here we have the concept of the baby's daddy, ravishing unwedded girls and abandoning them. So we have all the sins of modern society as well described here. But they were attributed to the gods by the Greeks. I guess the skeptic would claim that a girl that was found pregnant and not married, not with a husband anyway, she was married, but he abandoned her. A girl that was loose and was abused by some man could always say that she was raped by a god. That's what a skeptic would say. 
But we clearly see a similar cultural belief with the Hebrews in more ways than one in that passage. And the concept that the gods were lawgivers, or that our laws should come from God in the Christian perspective. The guardian angel is found in Euripides, in Ion, again, in line 1269, where we read, My guardian spirit did me a good turn before I came to Athens. So we read in Matthew chapter 18, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven that concept of a guardian spirit. Here's a more explicit correlation. The time of purification following childbirth from Euripides from the play Electra at line 654 where she asks an old man to announce the birth of her son to Clytemnestra. Clytemnestra is the widow and murderer of Agamemnon. Electra was also a daughter of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, and like her brother Orestes, she also felt compelled to avenge her father's murder against her mother. So after she tells him to go announce the birth of her grandson, hoping to lure her mother to her, the old man asks how long it had been since the birth of the child, and she responds, Ten days ago, the time a woman who has given birth keeps pure. To this we must compare Leviticus chapter 12. And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived seed and born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days according to the days of the separation for her infirmity shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. She shall touch no hollow thing nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. But if she bears a maid child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying threescore and six days, double the time for a a girl child, right? The Greeks just shortened the time, but they clearly upheld the same tradition, that it had to be ten days before a woman could be touched again, to put it mildly. Rocks calling out his witnesses. And this we find in Euripides in Hippolytus, lines 979 and 980, where in the case of a certain event, Hippolytus declared that the Scironian rocks near the sea shall deny that I am a scourge to evildoers. So to this we must compare the words of Christ in Luke chapter 19. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. 
And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. So we see that same belief that in extreme cases, it's not really a belief, it's simply an idiom, that in extreme cases, even the rocks could cry out and make an attestation of something. So, no, the rocks aren't literally going to speak, but we see that idiom appears in both the words of Christ and in Euripides 500 years before Christ. Human sacrifice, and this, I believe, is is big. The theme of several Greek tragic poems, including Iphigenia among the Taurians, Iphigenia at Aulis, and Hecuba, all of them written by Euripides, all describe incidents of human sacrifice. First, Agamemnon sacrificed his own daughter, Iphigenia, in exchange for propitious weather that his armies may sail to Troy. So he sent for her to come to Aulis under a false pretense. She thought she was going to get married. And her sacrifice is also mentioned in the Iliad. Clytemnestra despised her husband for the act, but nevertheless the father was not accounted a murderer, and the mother was when she killed her husband. The title of Iphigenia among the Taurians reflects a later tale that she was taken up by Artemis at the last minute and that a deer was sacrificed in her stead. The ending of Iphigenia at Aulis is missing, so we will never know if Euripides remained consistent in his accounts. The parallels between Iphigenia among the Tarians and the sacrifice of Isaac are several. In the sacrifice of Isaac, Yahweh sought to exhibit the faith of Abraham, who complied with the demand that he sacrifice his son. Yahweh substituted a ram in place of Isaac, and Abraham was credited for his faith. Isaac, a willing victim on account of his respect for his father, was also credited. Likewise, Iphigenia was portrayed as a willing victim once she arrived at Aulis and learned the truth. So she was credited and saved by the same goddess to whom she would have been sacrificed. So it is almost as if the sacrifice of Isaac was a model for Euripides' account of the sacrifice of Iphigenia. The sacrifice of her daughter Polyxena, which is described in Euripides' Hecuba, has multiple versions and conflicting accounts. The girl was sacrificed on the tomb of Achilles by the victorious Greeks as they defeated the Trojans. In Euripides' version, Polyxena was supposedly betrothed to Achilles, but also complicit in his death, and the ghost of Achilles demanded her sacrifice. All of that is immaterial to scripture, except perhaps for the act of avenging a kinsman, which the ghost of Achilles had demanded.
one more act of human sacrifice, which is pertinent to parallels between Greek and Hebrew, is the play Children of Heracles by Euripides at lines 579 and 591 and 92, where a certain unnamed maiden about to be sacrificed in order to help save her brothers laments her maidenhood. In one place she states, you see that I am sacrificing my chance of marriage. And in another, these deeds I have as treasures to replace children and the days of my maidenhood. And this compares to the account of Judges chapter 11, where Jephthah's daughter says of her impending sacrifice, And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. So like we said, there are probably many other parallels in Hebrew and Greek culture, but these which we have offered are far too numerous to be mere coincidences. Yeah, and I just um, found another one. Uh, as I said, you could probably compare it with Roman culture as well. But one was the uh, priesthoods they had in Rome. And um, I don't know a huge amount of this, but I believe I'm just reading it that there were originally 15 priesthoods. There was meant to be one for each god. But anyways, Julius Caesar, he was originally the Pontus of Jupiter. So he became the priesthood of Jupiter and then uh, Sulla wanted him removed. So he had to give it up. But but anyways, it's really interesting if you just read some of the rules of the priesthood. It's very similar to the uh, Levitical priesthood. Like they couldn't touch dead bodies. They couldn't go... um, you know, anywhere near them. And, you know, there are some weird ones that got added, but one, it's it's generally seems that the main theme was they were meant to be the example to society. So he had to marry a virgin and he, they could never get divorced. And, and that would be the ideal marriage, right? And he also um, couldn't be put in a, in a way to be tempted. He was never allowed to sit on a table without food. He could never hold an office. He could never command uh, an army. But you essentially, you see, although there are some stark differences between the priesthood, if you look at the Levitical priesthood, they had tithes so that they always had everything they needed. And Levite priests would never be tempted by power and they would be the example to society, right? And judge accordingly. And that's, that's, I think you can see a clear resemblance there with the priesthood that uh, Julius Caesar had. And, of course, we know eventually that's where the Pope came from, really, right? But, yeah, what do you think of that, Bill? Right. There there were many priesthoods in in Rome. Well, that's because there were many gods, right? Every god required his own priest. But it was by the the priesthood of Jupiter was the, the Roman tribe was seen as the high god of the Roman, of the Romans. That was their tribal god, Jove. And by that priesthood, they actually regulated their entire society. The calendar was actually created and announced by the priests of Jupiter. And many other aspects of Roman society were regulated by that priesthood. So 
yes, it, it had many parallels to the Le- Levitical priests of the Old Testament, who also kept the calendars and regulated their society. They were the regulators of, of the Hebrew society. They were the local judges in disputes. They were the arbiters of the avenging of the guilty for murder in, in the cities of refuge. They, they had a lot of power over the day-to-day society. And we do find those same reflections in the Roman priesthood. And of course, while common men in Deuteronomy were permitted to divorce and were not required to marry virgins, the priests were required to marry virgins and they were not permitted to marry a woman that had already had a husband. So they were held to a higher standard, without a doubt. Yeah, I think it would certainly be strange if a Levitical priest divorced three times and kept marrying, right? It, w- it would have been not seen as a good example. No, they were to set a, a better example. So even if, as Christ had explained later, that divorce was permitted under the law for the weakness of men and another man could marry a divorced wife because of the weakness of men. That's not the godly ideal. It's not. And the godly ideal is for a man to marry a virgin and remain with that woman forever. That's the godly ideal. Even Abraham and Jacob had multiple wives, but Isaac is is the ideal he only he married a virgin and he only had one wife. The Romans also had strict laws governing divorce. You just couldn't get divorced whenever you wanted to. And they had laws governing marriage. You could only marry certain people that had a right to marriage to a Roman marriage. A Roman citizen couldn't marry just anybody. They actually had terms describing that. So they had a lot of parallels with Hebrew society. And we could probably find, I don't know how many we, we've just covered, 20, 30, but these are serious um, foundational religious beliefs, many of them. We could probably find 300 parallels. We could keep going and going and going, keep going through Greek and Roman literature. It, it's basically all the same culture told in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Roman. But if you tried to do the same with Jewish culture, you would find basically nothing in similarity, right? Where the hell does chicken twirling come from? I, I want to know that. Where does chicken twirling? That's crazy. <laughs> they they um, twirl a chicken over their heads, and they believe that their sins go into the chicken, and then they kill the chicken. And that's just plain cruel. It's cruel, it's sadistic, and it's actually pretty, it expresses arrogance. That That's what you think about your sins so cheaply that you could absolve yourself from your sins by killing a chicken, twirling it over your head three times and tossing it away. I didn't ever read that in, in Greek or 
Roman literature. <laughs> Ever. I never read anything about chicken twirling. And it's not in the Bible. So imagine that. It's not anywhere in the Bible. So right, there are many other aspects of Jewish culture that is certainly not biblical and not related to anything else that we see in Europe. We should play chicken twirling videos with every podcast. I'm kidding. Judeo-Christian should be forced to watch chicken twirling videos in churches. Maybe they'd stop worshipping Jews. Okay. Or believing they were God's chosen people. Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thanks, Bill. Good night.